Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the Pulp Magazines for over 25 years. Learn more about the Pulp Magazines through articles, blogs, bibliographies, links, over 100 episodes of this podcast, and much more, at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, Jennifer DiGiacomo, moderates a panel discussion about Pulp Hero, Doc Savage, and several imitators who would follow him onto newsstands. Joining her are authors Wynne Scott Eckert, Craig McDonald, Will Murray, and Gary Phillips. The panel was part of a celebration of 90 years of the great Pulp Heroes. This podcast was recorded on August 5th at Pulp Fest 2023 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Jennifer begins. So I'm your moderator, Jenny Giacomo. I somehow didn't get a card. I don't know, but I, uh, I did the Savage Society of Bronze fanzine back in the 80s. Will Murray wrote many articles for that. We did the 40th anniversary uh, for it last year. And yes, I do moisturize. Uh, and then the year before, I did uh, a panel at my Cannonball Dash, where I drove from New York to LA in 35 hours and 56 minutes. So. Let me introduce everyone. Bachelor number one <laughs> uh, is Gary Phillips. <laughs> uh, oh, awesome. Thank you very much. Right, come on. Gary has written a lot of highly acclaimed novels. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Matthew Henson uh, and, and Decimator uh, Smith. Decimator. Right? Yeah. And so. Try to throw the covers up on there. Uh, we had a little bit of a mix-up, so a little last-minute change. And batch number two, <laughs> we're sitting in the wrong order, sorry guys, uh, is Craig McDonald, who's known for the obviously for the Heckmaster series, and then the two most recent uh, books, uh, Blood Ochre and Mothman Mess. Uh, batch number three, all the way at the end, when Scott Eckert uh is well known for all the Philip Jose Farmer work that you've done and then of course uh the monster unfold that we'll be talking about and bachelor number four whoops I'm sorry I'm using both of these so that's Craig's books and covers Quinn Scott's and Will Murray bachelor number four now he's written so many as we know that I've started to run through as many covers as I can so Will Murray to the rap of a long time Will Murray 3, King Kong Lives from the Skull Island. Will Murray 4, The Phantom Menace. Will Murray 5, What We Do in Shadows. And then finally, Will Murray 6, Back in Bronze. Okay. So when I got asked to moderate this panel, the first thing that ran into my head uh, was the Spider-Man meme. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, now with the new Spider-Man movie, has expanded and then has expanded again. So I tried to use my rudimentary Photoshop skills and do an equivalent for Doc's Edge. So that's as many Docs as I can pull together. Uh, So with that, uh, let's start talking about Doc. So I want to start with you, and I'm going to give you the mic in a second. Um, so for people who don't know about... I can, I can use my indoor voice. Yeah, well, uh, I usually can too, uh, but they did give me uh, a mic. I'll use my uh, <laughs> So uh, you've done uh, multiple books that are sort of homages to Doc Savage. 
uh, Decimator Smith and Matthew Henson, and I was wondering for the folks who aren't familiar with those, if you can give a little bit of background on the stories and... Here you go, here you go. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah I guess just real briefly, um, uh, Decimator Smith, I've only done, a, well, I've done three short stories with that character, and it started in uh, uh, Black Pulp, which Pro Se brought out, or I convinced Tommy to bring out uh, Black Pulp, which is kind of the sort of revisionist look at at Pulp Heroes from, uh, you know, obviously, uh, I guess, a, a, a black point of view, or at least with black characters, but obviously also set in, in those time periods, but, uh, and then, and in particular, though, I wanted my character to be set in Los Angeles in the 30s, which is often not looked at in the pulps, uh, or at least certainly not traditionally looked at in the pulps, and I have a particular interest, I guess, partly because of growing up in L.A. and a lot of my uh, crime Fiction is set in L.A., uh, most of it modern day, although now, lately, I've been doing a crime photographer set in the 60s in L.A. So, anyway, I just wanted to kind of also ex examine that period of time in Los Angeles, uh, which is kind of lost to history, but certainly at a time period when the city was segregated, but, and yet there was a, sort of this vibrant um, black life along what was called Central Avenue and, and parts of the east, what we called the east side then in the city, and this character comes along, and but like Doc, he's a public hero. And then with Matthew Henson in the Ice Temple of Harlem, the the novel I did, I, I took a real life character, uh, Matthew Henson, who was part of that uh, expedition that reaches the North Pole. Some argue that he in fact uh, reached the North Pole uh, first, somewhat by accident, uh, in terms of because it was a, a storm had come up and all this other stuff. But I read Henson's uh, purported. Uh, it's not really a biography, it's really a memoir of that time period. Uh, and then some other stuff, which it turned out that Henson and Perry both had uh, Inuit kids they didn't talk about a lot <laughs> in their respective uh, real-life uh, uh, memoirs. Uh, and so in my revisionist history of that, I make him more of a kind of Doc Indiana Jones kind of character, uh, as well as then his Inuit son, uh, who's a teenager at the time of when I set the novel, which is in 28 in the Harlem Renaissance, uh, figures into the plot or figures uh, into the uh, sort of subplot. And then in the second novel, which eventually I'm going to get around to writing, uh, the, the kid, the kid, the teenager will be a, a more prominent role. Great. So, uh, Craig, I'm going to bounce over to you. Uh, you've written a lot of novels, obviously, and now you're uh, writing the uh, Zeno Saban character. Um, can you give a little background for people who haven't read it? It's, it there's a lot of, it's about Tulpas, there's a lot of Walter Gibson, mm. Lester Dent. So can you kind of give, I guess, everyone some background as to sort of where the story sprang from and, and sort of how it sets up? Yeah, as a Doc Savage fan, I got a copy of a magazine called New One Day. Um, Fascinating, brilliant interview with Walter B. Gibson, conducted by this gentleman, in which uh, the subject came up of a particular uh, piece of property in Greenwich Village, very old colonial age, where a mysterious figure was being seen. It was written about by Hans Holzer, kind of a dodgy parapsychologist <laughs> in the 60s. But Walter Gibson saw this uh, uh, article, or this, or became aware of this story of this ghost of Gay Street and uh, suggested that it was a result of, uh, kind of a, help me out, Will, because you, <laughs> you had the interview, 
but uh, it, uh, kind of a mind projection stemming from a powerfully conceived. Yeah, the Tibetans had a concept that if, and supposedly they've done it, some people done experiments and did actually accomplish this, and to their regret. But you know, yeah. it's part of the, the 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 spiritual psychic world that a lot of people don't have any dealings with, but some of us do. Um, the idea was if if a person or enough people concentrated, they could create a simulacrum of a person, hmm. whether it's a original person or a, uh, a replica of someone who may no longer be around, a replica of someone who is around. And Walter thought, and I, I, I tend, to, tend to disagree with him here for reasons that go into my own work in other, other areas, he thought that maybe because he wrote the last four shadow novels at Gay Street, his powers of concentration in creating that character created a talpa, a duplicate of the shadow that has some some physicality or at least some visibility. Uh, and uh, you know, he he was intrigued by that because the description is kind of uncanny. And and there were a couple incidental things. For instance, people would smell the odors of violets. Well, there was one shadow novel where the shadow used the odor of violets as a as a kind of a, a signal or a, or a telltale, and they only did it once. So that's kind of a little far-fetched that it would show up that much later. And um, there was stuff about Chinatown and drugs and smuggling and stuff. So it sounded it sounded like it had, and the guy wore a cloak, and cloak or a cape, like an opera cape, and had sparkling eyes. So Walter became enamored of the idea that uh, uh, the Tulpa exists. Now, what was interesting about that to me is that Walter didn't believe in ghosts, but he was willing to believe in this. So. so that was my springboard. Okay. And then going further from that, the fact that Lester Dent and uh, the early writings of Doc Savage was writing on Furious Space, and there were claims that he started to see his characters and interact with them in kind of a nervous breakdown situation or something. Hmm. But uh, when you're that prolific, you're writing that intensely, the idea became that some of these pulp characters took on an actual personality, not by name, but I mean, as living beings moving in our world. So that was the inspiration for the series. Um, and also just trying to update these characters. I, I have a strong belief that locking them in the 1930s is an increasingly difficult way to perpetuate them. I've got two daughters who the 1930s might as well be medieval times for them. I mean, they won't watch black and white films. I mean, they're emblematic of their generation. So. Uh, Starting in the 1960s, I thought that would be a little more of a comfortable zone for Doc Savage and Shadow fans because we all, this generation of us really came to them through paperbacks that started coming out in that period. The third novel, uh, which I think will be out soon, will bring them into our age completely. Uh, 21st century issues we're living with right now. So that's mm -hmm. it. Cool. And my bachelor then will become as news to my wife. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Just as I was creating the presentation, I realized it would be me and the four of you. Gotcha. I thought that might, that might be fun. Anyway, so when yeah. you're married as well. Thanks. Uh, so you Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so and condolences to my wife. <laughs> uh, so the monster on hold yes. that started from three chapters and outlines and notes and things that you had had from from. Uh, Philip was a farmer. Correct. Um, so, how was the process for you taking what it sort of was extant? Sure. 
maybe even contradictory notes and just sort of thoughts and sort of crafting something that paid homage to what he was working on, but also allowed you to forge your own path and right. writing a story that, that you found compelling. Okay. Um, let, can I back up and just briefly describe who Doc Caliban is? First? Oh, sure. And yes, I'm sorry. Okay. You, you've no. done many yeah. panels. So I <laughs> sorry. Yeah, maybe there's a few. But yes, please I'll, get back I'll, I'll be Doc. brief. But so, uh, so Phil Farmer wrote in 1969 and 1973 novels, uh, A Feast Unknown, Lord of the Trees, and Mad Goblin. Uh, and the first one, he had his analogs of Tarzan and Doc Savage, who were Lord Gruneth and uh, Doc Caliban, uh, fighting against uh, the, um, the nine who both controlled them, uh, but, but then became, they turned on and became their enemies because these were kind of the secret rulers of the world. And they, uh, both of these characters had sold their souls in exchange for immortality. So Doc Caliban kind of had all of his Doc Savage-like adventures through the 1930s and 1940s, but he would also go on these other missions for the Nine um, that were maybe not quite so savory. So you kind of have this conflict, this, um, uh, this duality, right, where he really wanted to help the world with his inventions and, uh, and fight you know, criminals, as long as that didn't conflict with uh, the machinations of the Nine. Uh, so jump forward to 1968, which is when the first book takes place, uh, and the Nine uh, had lost a member, and they had this uh, very strange ritual for trying to induct uh, a new member uh, and who's going to be elevated uh, to be the new ninth member of the Nine. And to keep it short, the, they sort of did the traditional uh, Marvel first, where it's Doc versus Tarzan, right, <laughs> or Grunneth versus... Um, versus Caliban, and then and then they realize that they're both being they're both being used as dupes, uh, and they both turn against the Nine. And the rest of the series is about their battle against the Nine. Uh, Lord of the Trees is a straight Lord Gruneth novel, uh, and then the Mad Goblin is a straight Doc Caliban novel. Um, they both take place at the same time and sort of intertwining references to each other. And then it all goes silent. Uh, several members of the Nine have been killed. Uh, but there's still uh, at least five uh, remaining members who are still alive, and uh, and all goes silent. Uh, so jump forward to 1983. It was World Fantasy Convention. Uh, Phil presented uh, to an audience uh, much like this one, but probably much larger, <laughs> uh, that uh, his um, outline for a projected fourth book. And again, he verbally presented it. Uh, and then read uh, a chapter, and then it was um, in text form in, in the World Fantasy Convention booklet. Um, so that was, so we had an outline to the novel, right? right? Uh, and we had a chapter which actually took place late in the book. Uh, in Phil's files, then very fortunately found three additional uh, short but substantive sections. Uh, and so I had this to play with. Uh, I had to integrate it. There were a few conflicts, some timeline conflicts and things like that. Uh, so with the kind permission of Phil's estate, um, I, I took it on. Uh, he, his premise for the book was that um, Doc Caliban uh, basically versus the Cthulhu mythos uh, without naming them that is sort of his own um, his own names for the cosmic entities or the cosmic monsters. 
uh, who had the nine had unwittingly unleashed, right? So now we don't have just the nine, but we also have this cosmic um, crisis that, that is going to be happening. And Doc Caliban starts to see the, the, the cosmic entity, Shrask, starts to um, implant nightmares, or what he thinks is nightmares in his brain, where he's seeing another version of himself, uh, sort of in a different timeline. And so that's, that's what we went with. Um, of course, Doc Savage is never named, because uh, we don't you know, do copyright or trademark infringement, um, but it's heavily implied that Doc Caliban is seeing his other self, and his other self is sort of going through a similar set of circumstances in an alternate universe, uh, and they kind of come together uh, to, to, um, to hopefully defeat the menace. The menace also, by the way, is a, again, an unstated, unofficial sequel to, um, to the final printed pulp uh, up from Earth Center. Uh, so it takes elements from that, tries to sort of solve some of those weird, unexplained things that Lester Dent left hanging in this very odd um, final novel. Uh, and again, the, the explanations are sort of by implication um, rather than coming out and saying, this is it, this is the solution, this is the solution. Um, so that's kind of it in a nutshell. Doc Caliban versus the Nine versus Cthulhu. Yep, that's great. Um, so Will, you wrote a lot of officially licensed Doc Savage novels. Uh, Python Isle was the first one that yeah. was done. Uh, I listened to it on Audible driving out here, or the, the uh, Radio Archives version yeah. of it. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your approach to that novel versus the later ones that you wrote. This is your first time being able to write as Kenneth Ropes, and I'm assuming there's a lot of excitement, there's a lot of nervousness. I think you rewrote that one a little bit more than you rewrote maybe some of the other ones. So I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, I didn't rewrite it more. I probably rewrote it less because those were typewriter days, not computer days. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, well, I've told this story many times. I will tell it again. Uh, when Mrs. Dent gave me permission to write the story in the hopes that we could convince Bantam to publish it, uh, I had written short stories and I'd written a lot of nonfiction. I was not a seasoned writer, I'd never written a novel. I'd started a few things that might have ended up being novels if I had ever finished them. Um, so I sat down one day at my little Olivetti portable typewriter and I wrote the prologue, which was a couple of pages at most. And I liked it, it, you know, I fixed it. And I was using erasable paper, so I'd taken an eraser to it, all that stuff. And then the next day I wrote, or maybe that same day, I wrote chapter one, which is about 10, 12 pages, and that seemed to go well. And in prep, I reread some of my favorite docs from that year, so that I was in that zone. And then on the second day, I wrote uh, another chapter. I think it was the third day, I'm typing away on chapter three, and I can feel someone standing behind me. And I didn't turn around, I don't know why. I could feel someone standing behind me, and I just felt this, what I would call now, energy. All of a sudden, and I'm a two-finger typist, I'm going, and I wrote, I think, two chapters that day. And the next day I wrote three chapters, and I think the next day I wrote four or something, I don't remember. But the point is, I, I, I wrote a huge chunk of the book in three days with this, and then I crashed. And then when I resumed, it was a chapter or two at a time. Now, I don't know if that was Lester Dent standing behind me, but it, it, was, it was an unusual experience, let's put it that way. And uh, so I typed it out, 
because again, those are typewriter days. I took a pen to it and I erased things and I did stuff. And then eventually, methodically, I retyped it so I had a final draft. And that's the process as I remember it. And to me, it was more or less trying to stay in the zone, picking up Doc Savages, looking at how Lester Dent wrote things, which I already knew because I'd read them all, or most of them at that point. Yeah, I think I read them all at that point. And uh, just trying to get a good, solid story within the more or less, you know, word count of an original doc. I think we ran a little over, or we ran as long as maybe the Land of Terror, which I think is the longest doc. So we hit, we hit the zone, and that's, that's how that got written, primitively, <laughs> on a typewriter. And how much of that first story was you, and how much was Dan's well, I had a complete, lines? I had a complete outline, but Dan usually didn't follow his outlines, so I, I didn't really wing it too much. I mean, I, I, may, I think I may have broken a chapter differently than he did, and I, I set up a... Uh, a uh, potential uh, face-off between uh, Doc and uh, the villain called Bull Paisano, and uh, I couldn't pay it off because the, the velocity of the story and the direction of the story didn't allow for them to come together and have a face-off, which I was criticized for justly, but I couldn't, you know, I was, I was stuck with the outline even though I created some things within or outside the outline, uh, you know, that character was in him, but I had to create who he was. So Dent's outlines, I think he saw as selling tools more than as blueprints. It was, this is the, the way the story might go, you know, because sometimes he changed the villain in the middle of the story if he wrote himself into a corner, right. you know. So I was following the outline, you know, pretty, as close as I could, but still creating things to build it up and make it a Lester Dent-style Doc Savage story. Great. So Gary, um, I'm curious, what was your first encounter with Doc Savage? What was the first novel you you read, and, and how, oh. what was it about the character that, yeah. that oh, that, made you kind of write? That's not even on. Oh, I gotta switch on. Is that on now? Hello, hello. Yeah, Eustace. All right, there we go. Yeah. Uh, well, I think like a lot of folks, it was uh, when I was a teenager, and the and the Bantam. Uh, you know, books with those great Bama covers were being uh, were being reprinted. Uh, so this would have been the early 70s, and so you know I'd be on my way to you know, I play football and stuff in school, and I'd always have a Doc Savage uh, paperback in my back pocket, uh, and uh, you know sometimes we had time in the, in the locker room. I'm reading there before practice or whatever, and and so that and it just it was just enthralled me. I mean it, I mean eventually I, then I stumbled into you know Hammond and Chandler and what have you, but. But the idea that there were these, and then I kind of went backward, right? Because this is also the day, uh, days of uh, fandom and fanzines. Well, it's still fanzines, but those days that were, you know, mimeographed <laughs> uh, uh, fanzines and, uh, and cheaply offset fanzines. And, and so then I started just acquiring these different kinds of, uh, uh, I guess Duende was one of them, and then some other stuff, and then starting to read this backstory and learning about who Lester Dent was. And, and how those things got published, and then uh, I just got it, got absorbed into it. I just uh, fell into it, and and always uh, it always stuck with me after all these years. And then you know, I, I don't think I've actually read a doc now, probably in the last twenty years. Though I've listened to a few now on on uh, audio. I was actually just listened to uh, uh, Fortress of Solitude not too long ago, 
uh, and it still, you know, brings me back. And, that, and, and particularly, I think dense uh, style, and, and as you know, everybody talks about, everybody knows, you know, a lot of us, you just had to grind it out, and you just, you know, because you got paid by the word, and you had a deadline, you had to meet that deadline, and you just had to go and go and go. But really, it just had such an influence on me, like that, in, in those days early on. Yeah. So it, I read the, um, I read your two short stories. Yeah. The, Decimator Smith. Yeah. Uh, what I like is in the first story, there's sort of an origin mm -hmm. story, and then you start to bring in all of the companions, right. sort of building into it. Uh, which were your favorite companions of reading it? And because you also have um, you have the Bronze Angel who shows up. Yeah, who shows up. Uh, and, aviatrix. And, right, and then there's uh, uh, Rocco, his his uh, manager, who was a. Uh, uh, I think we were just speaking about comics earlier. He was a, a, a red uh, uh, lawyer in New York and gets disbarred. Um, but I'm also fooling with some LA history. Uh, there's a Jack Parsons-like character in the first story uh, who was somewhat dispensed with, but this will reverberate in, this reverberates in the second story, not so much in the third story, and then eventually there's going to be a, you know, once I get to the novella, I'll do that, and then at some point down the line, I'm going to have um, Decimator and uh, uh, Matthew Henson meet. Uh, but again, I think I'm going to bring Henson West. I'm, 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 I'm just kind of fascinated with the idea, again, with this notion of 30s and, and, and that era, looking at L.A. in that lens, but sort of in a you know, different way, but also then um, infusing a lot of... Um, Actual characters, and because I do it in the Henson book too, you know, Tesla shows up, uh, Dutch Schultz is trying to encroach on the numbers racket, which that was true. Uh, Queenie St. Clair was the boss of the, one of the bosses of the numbers racket, so that's kind of one of the subplots. So all that to say is that when I when I write these, I'm writing. Yeah, I'm, I'm obviously I'm writing revisionist pulp, but I'm also so I'm trying to keep some of those traditions alive, but I'm also trying to bring in more of um, the actualities of the time period. Right. Um. So Craig, I'm curious. Uh, in reading your books, you have a unique chapter naming style. I was wondering, everything seems to be named after Doc Savage. Just in, the, just in that yes. first one, and I, I've said the first of those novels is a, a novel about pulp, pulp history and magazines, and it explores Walter Gibson and Lester Dent's lives. It has their spouses. Uh, Walter Gibson was married to a magician. It was one of his marriages. Um, and so it, it, it was something I had done in another book, in the Hector Laster series, they have a novel called Print the Legend, which is about the FBI's harassment of writers and Ernest Hemingway. And I had done a similar thing there where I had used Ernest Hemingway short story titles, book titles, uh, little known high school articles, things that, where the title actually spoke to the theme of the chapter and advances the art. So that's what I did there. And uh, with that particular book, with that many, I, I didn't have James Patterson level chapters of 100 or, or 100, <laughs> but you do hit a point where it becomes a real challenge. So I was, I was actually getting into uh, some of Will's scholarship and looking at alternate titles that were thought about uh, some other of his titles for non-doc works that kind of fit. So it was it was just kind of a, a wink and an homage and you know a tribute to to Lester Dent and his work particularly. I think there's a couple of Walter Gibson titles in there as well, maybe. So. 
But that's where that comes from. Okay, and how did you approach writing about these characters who you can't name, <laughs> per se, giving different nicknames? What was sort of the approach? Or, or different proper about? names. Yeah, the, the, um, the idea is that these characters became manifested physically as tulpas in our world, but they have their own identities. And in theory, I toyed with going here when I really thought about the fact that, you know, they, they have been other pastiches done, and, and uh, obviously Farmer did some things with Pat Savage that uh, I wouldn't have done necessarily, but I actually thought about having her kind of take Farmer down at one point for sort of his treatment of her in a way that she would have found undignified or even offensive. <laughs> but but the, it, it's, it's metafiction and it's, you know, characters kind of commenting on themselves. And in theory, um, I, I'll probably take that theme further in the fourth, from the fourth book with what if somebody, what if these people existed and somebody really decided to manifest a villain, and you can crowdsource it now through the internet in theory, and uh, you know, make your own, not John Sunlight, but something like that, yeah, but it, it, I just really wanted to give them a little more dimension too, I mean, I came to the, the paperbacks, the first one was The Land of Terror, and um, it was given to me, my grandfather picked it up in a bar, he was an iron worker in New York in the 30s, so he had read The Pulps. And uh, I fell in love with the thing. It's the most atypical Doc Savage. I mean, for me, it, it kind of ruined Doc Savage for me in the <laughs> sense that in the very first chapter, he's in hot pursuit of someone, but he stops to diagnose a kid with an eye problem and give him a card and kind of give him a referral to a clinic before he goes out and, and basically slaughters people. So, I mean, there's Doc Savage. <laughs> but I never got that again in 179 miles. So, so there you have it. So, so when I'm curious, uh, what was your first Doc Savage novel? The Living Fire Menace uh, was my first. Um, Among a Batch, I, that's the first one I remember reading. I got a, I got a bunch of them from a family friend all at once, probably about 10 or 12 along with apocalyptic life. Um, so it's kind of all uh, as a gift, like here's, here's an omnibus, right, of all the bantams. Uh, Mad Mesa was one, um, uh, The Polar Treasure, I remember being one of the first ones that I had. Uh, and, uh, and I read them uh, cross, in a cross-country trip back home from, from Washington, D.C., uh, back to Colorado because that's where we were visiting the friends and so you know sitting in 1975 in the back of a you know giant Pontiac going to, you know reading probably not wearing a seatbelt or you know. yeah. <laughs> good times good yeah. times yeah. Uh, so how did you how did it feel writing Philip Jose Farmer like did, was it daunting was it exciting like what was your sort of approach to it because oh. Yeah. Someone who I, I'm assuming was was a hero to you, yes. just sitting down and trying to do it justice, and and at the same time be able to stretch your own legs. Right. Writer. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, all of the above, you know, daunting, um, exciting. I mean, I've read so much Farmer that his voice is is in my head, um, and so you know, I didn't set out. 
to try to copy his style. I mean, I didn't set out to, but I also have been told that I do a decent job of um, mimicking, if you will, his style. And I think it's just natural because I've read that all my life, year after year, I'm reading farmer books. And so I think it's just ingrained. Um, yeah, not intentional. Um, I certainly wouldn't want the styles to clash. That would be, um, you know, I wouldn't want that. But on the other hand, you know, I didn't, I didn't look to, to, you know, consciously say, you know, well, this is not, you know, in his voice, and I need to try to make it more. So I didn't do that. Um, you know, I'm, I mean, I met Phil, and so he he gave me the blessing to complete one of his earlier completely unpublished manuscripts. Um, and I worked with him and sent, you know, via mail because he wasn't on email, um, manuscripts back and forth and got feedback uh, from him, and that was invaluable. Um, so, uh, uh, still daunting because you want to do it justice. You, uh, is it the final definitive? Will someone else come if, some, if there's this great farmer renaissance in 50 years and, you know, have another take on it? M maybe. Uh, but, uh, but I feel like I have dug enough into his mythology, his themes, not just from Caliban and Greneth, but across all of his work, um, to incorporate you know, some of his themes and, and uh, some of his viewpoints. Uh, so, yeah, um, honored, I think, is really the, the primary word. It's an, it's an honor. Uh, to be entrusted with that, and I, I hope I did it justice. That's all. That's all you I did, can do. You definitely. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, well, I'm curious. Uh, I also listen to White Eyes. It's a long time. Um, it's one of my favorites. Yes. So there's this wonderful character, Maximilian Lavender, yeah. who butchers the English language the entire time. Was that? Was any of that from Lester? Oh, it was or? all from Lester because he it, it, it was similar to a character in. Uh, here, here's the story. You know, I cannibalize his manuscripts where they're yep. unpublished. <laughs> he had started writing The Vanisher, and it was supposed to be set in Washington. And it was supposed to be about. Um, I think it was one of your spy story or something. And uh, he, I, I think. I gather from this and some other things, Dent had a habit of, of when he wasn't in New York, mailing in his outline, starting the book without an approval. <laughs> and sometimes that bit him in the behind. Hmm. And this was one such time. He, he'd written about three quarters of the story when Inovic said, okay, we've got a problem here. One of Donovan's docs has a similar theme. So I want you to remove the spy element and the this element and the that element and instead substitute this. So he had to stop writing, back up, throw out tons of pages of manuscript, which he didn't throw out, just to put aside, and pick up the story from a certain point and change things and whatever. Well, there was tons of pages left over, and they had this interesting character who, who you know, and as, as well as scenes. So when I um, wrote White Eyes, which was initially built from a discarded 50-page opening to The Annihilist, one of my favorite books and one of the best docs ever written, uh, I found that the 50 pages and the discarded stuff could be joined. And so as I wrote, after I wrote 
my rewrite of the 50 pages or my slight edit of the 50 pages, I started incorporating stuff from The Vanisher and that was you know, one of the characters. So that's purely a Lester Dent character. I had, to, I had to create new scenes and new manglings, but I salvaged as much of that as I could because I thought it was good writing and it was interesting and it enabled me to do a story that was largely Lester Dent, which is I think the whole point of the exercise, if it's possible to do that. You know, that's, so that's where that character came from. And then in Frightened Fish, which was the third one that was published, there's a lot of characters who show back up from yeah. previous novels. Was that something that, that no. Lester Dent was intending, or did you pull those characters? Dent pitched a very simple idea about, you know, uh, a threat to the world's uh, fishing industry. And I had to come up, he had a villain name, that he was just a name. And I knew that he had introduced the character of Jonas Sohn in the, the story called uh, The Screaming Man with the idea of bringing him back, but he never did. Presumably the editor didn't feel that was necessary to do that. So I said, I'm going to revise that villain. I'm going to make him the driver of this. And the name that Lester Dent came up would simply be his alias you know, in the story. And so bringing back Sari Mitra from the Red Spider was my idea. So Dent basically had an opening situation and a motivation for a villain, and that was it. So I, I free associated the rest of it. Right. What, what was the first novel you wrote that wasn't not at all from a Dent outline or, or anything, just purely a little uh, That would be Skull Island. I think that's the only one except for... Um, the War Makers, which is from a Ryerson Johnson outline, so uh, Skull Island is the only one because everything came from Lester Dent. Otherwise, so you know, I was only interested in doing Lester Dent Doc Savages, and it turns out there was more material than I thought. You know, some of it was outlines where he changed the story so much that the stuff he left in the outline that wasn't used was a perfectly good opening situation. For instance, uh, The Forgotten Realm. There were two outlines I worked from for published stories, but the elements I used were never used. In the original outline to the Thousand-Headed Man, it was going to start in a, in a British insane asylum where a guy has been imprisoned who was wearing a uh, uh, unusual clothes or something. I forget the situation, but he was, he was a guy who would encountered a lost city and he'd been institutionalized, and he, got, he escaped to go back to that lost city for his own reasons. Well, they didn't use that in The Thousand Head Man. And then in The Phantom City, which was the year before, Dent had originally had that story going to end up in a Roman city in Africa that had survived from the days of the uh, uh, Roman, lost Roman legions. So I said, well, here's an opening about a guy who wants to go back to a lost civilization that he discovered, Here's a lost civilization that threw away completely. All I need is a middle. You know, I'll just read right my way to that thing. And it was a lot of good continuity. And I always want to work with down outlines or writing because that's how I get in the groove and stay in the groove, one of the ways anyway. So, you know, if you say, well, write 10 Will Murray Docs, I don't know if I want to. <laughs> right. 
Cool. Well, I think we're getting this 345, so I do want to allow a couple questions, but I do want to give everyone an opportunity to talk about what's coming up next in terms of your writing, be it just regular in terms of novels uh, or the characters that we've been talking about, and also how people can get your books if they're sold out in, as they are in your case. As they are in my case. Because uh, I didn't bring that many. Uh, they're anywhere. I mean, you know, they're in bookstores and, and Amazon. Well, that's not true. The pro say stuff was all, only just, you know, Amazon and, and, and at cons. And then the, uh, Matthew Henson is, is distributed wherever. It's the normal book distri distribution channels. Uh, there's going to be a Decimator Smith third story uh, with uh, Jim Anthony shows up. Uh, and this is going to be part of uh, the Moonstone Triple Threat, I think it is. <coughs> Uh, that whenever the hell Joe, well, it's going to be out soon. <laughs> People who know Joe know whenever the hell it shows up. But actually, it's apparently going to show up soon because I just did the proof for it. And then, as I said, I'm 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 actually finishing the edits on the sequel to One Shot Harry, my my, uh, my crime fiction novel that came out last year. Uh, this will be set during uh, right in the middle of the Watts riots, and of course, my character's getting his head beaten by the cops as usual. And then I'm going to sit down and plot out the uh, plot out the Decimator Smith novella, which is going to lead into the Decimator Smith uh, Matthew Henson team up. Gotcha. Great, Greg. Sorry, I forgot about the yep. order. <laughs> um, so uh, the third novel in this series, it's named on the back. Uh, almost finished um, that. A trilogy that. Um, I had options by St. Martin's at one point, and then hmm. kind of had a falling out with an editor. And uh, so I'm going to put those out soon. Those are kind of horror noir set in the 1950s. It tracks the history of Hollywood. It's kind of hard to explain. First one's 1950s, second one's 1970s, and about exploitation films. Then it jumps to the superhero craze we're all enduring now. And then a uh, literary novel scheduled to come out about. Craig, what's the, that called? What's the overall arch? I mean, call the title. God, what is it called? It's been so long. The Night Town trilogy. Oh. But yeah, the first one's called Immortal Game. So it's uh, William Blake. Um, and then uh, a literary novel that's coming out about the kind of fraught relationship of. Ernest Hemingway, Scott Fitzgerald, and Zelda Fitzgerald. So that that should all happen in a year or so. Cool. Huh? When? Thanks. Uh, so you can find uh, the monster on hold at meteorhousepress.com for direct order or on Amazon uh, for the trade paperback and, or the ebook. Uh, in terms of what's coming next in, in that series, uh, I still left a few things from the overall series of four books unresolved, particularly in reference to some of the items from Lord Grunneth's continuity uh, in, in the series, and so I, I will be doing a wrap-up. It will be completely whole cloth from me. Unfortunately, there's nothing from Phil uh, available, but I will do a Lord Grunneth more centered uh, novel. Um, Caliban, I'm sure, will still appear in it for the, for the doc fans. But before that happens, uh, I've got, uh, for Edgar Rice Burroughs, Inc., uh, I've got a trilogy <coughs> called The Dead Moon Super Arc, a Pellucidar trilogy. Uh, the first book is Korak at the Earth's Core, uh, which I'm close to turning in uh, to the editor. 
Uh, the next book will be Pellucidar, Land of Awful Shadow. Uh, and then the third book will be Tarzan Unleashed. Great. So Will, before you talk about what is coming up next, did you write any science novels that have not been published? No, but I have an outline and I have, well I actually did start one. It's only a few pages long. I have an outline that I had overlooked for a published story and I realized after I stopped writing them that this is, with some changes, this is a whole complete story, a complete direction that normally was done. That would be called The Sun Terror. And I had announced The Haunted Sky, which would be made up of different elements that were left over. I have an opening chapter from my friend Charles Verrill, who used to write Bill Barnes, and it would be a good opening for a Doc Sabbath. So I was going to use the Bill Barnes opening and tie it into some Lester Dent material that fit with it, and I would have The Haunted Sky. So I may, you know, last time I talked to the Bill Commonass, the door opened a little bit about me doing another one or two. Okay. Maybe after the next Patterson or the last Patterson. I don't know Doc Sabbath books. But, uh, uh, so I haven't given up on doing a couple more docs. That's great. You know, as far as what I'm doing, I just released Tarzan Back to Mars, my sequel to Tarzan Conqueror of Mars. I'm talking to Don Murphy, the Hollywood producer who now owns the spider about doing the spider <laughs> novel. Huh. Uh, the Ice Burroughs people and I are talking about another Tarzan. And I'm talking about reviving Dr. Death in a novel called Secret Agent X versus Dr. Death. So we'd have another crossover. And uh, what else? I'll just keep doing Cthulhu and Sherlock Holmes stories, so I'll keep doing those collections. And who knows what might pop up that I'm not even thinking about right now. In my books, most of them are at the table out in the dealer's room. And of course, I have my website. You can get a business card from me. And if you don't want to buy books here, you can buy them through the mail or on Amazon. We don't have that many that much time, but we can take questions. That's from one of the animated dice savages, the attempt for one yeah. of the animated dice. We awed them into silence. Yes. Yeah. Any questions? When, uh, in your communication with uh, uh, Philip Jose Farmer, was there any piece of just writing advice that he shared with you? Yeah, be yourself. <laughs> right, don't. I mean, that's it. Be your, write what write what your passion is. Don't try to write something else that you don't have a passion for. Oh, I'm sorry. I have a question for when uh, related to non unknown. Do you know if Farmer was um, spinning off of Talbot Mundy's Jim Grimm novel, non unknown? Is it related to that at all? It's 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 not related in terms of. You know, like the Nine Unknown from Monday were necessarily some kind of predecessor group, or, you know, it's not in universe, no. But I can't imagine that there wasn't some sort of influence, just, you know, uh, an ancient cabal, you know, on the number nine. Any other questions? Oh, hand, there you go. Uh, Will, you did the the combinations with the Shadow and Doc Savage together. Have you considered, since you're doing Tarzan now, obviously Beast Unknown had a Tarzan combo. I was wondering if you considered that at all. Um, you mean Doc meets Tarzan? Yes. Yeah, of course, I have a plot for that. <laughs> what I don't have is the licensors agreeing to it. I don't know that we can make that happen because it's complicated. It would be hard enough to get me to do get another Doc Savage contract given that they're going in a different direction with the character 
But yeah, that's that's my one of my last uh, un, uncompleted uh, bucket list things to you know to have Tarzina Doc in an authorized story. Yeah, I, I, I have an, I have a plot for that, and you know if we could ever make it happen, I would definitely write that. But I'm I'm, I'm dubious that it could be it could be done in in my lifetime. <laughs> In my remaining lifetime. <laughs> also, it works out. Yeah, thank you. Well, thanks everyone for coming. Thanks, everybody. Thank All the You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast brought to you by the Pulp Net, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines for over 25 years. Learn more about the Pulp magazines through articles, blogs, bibliographies, links, over 100 episodes of this podcast, and much more, at thepulp.net. Also, look for The Pulp Net on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you for listening, and keep reading The Pulps. This Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2023 by William P. Lampkin. All rights reserved.